we have the pleasure of having Greg at our house on Tuesdays for um, for internight. He just comes to it because we invited him, and um, sometimes we just have him play the piano for us. It's just awesome. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Genesis chapter three. If you have only a pew Bible, that's great because you can know you can turn to page five and follow along. It won't be projected, so you might want to do that. We're going through a series called The Gospel Through the Bible, where we're trying to see God's unfolding story and plan of salvation in the whole of Scripture and begin to see Jesus on every page of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. It's also kind of cool to see, as we're just starting in this, other churches around the country, I'm seeing this kind of pop up. Other, for some reason, God seems to be leading other churches to do this, and the places that are putting out stuff for the church um, seem to be putting out stuff specifically in this, which is called biblical theology, seeing God through the scriptures. In fact, um, just this last last night, I saw on the Gospel Coalition website that Don Carson is putting out a book with a bunch of talks that he just did at Bethlehem Baptist Church two weekends ago. He did like 12 talks over a weekend there that are all being produced right now to come out. And I'll put that on the Engage and Equip blog as soon as we know. So it's kind of neat to see. seems like we're falling into the flow of what God seems to be doing in a lot of churches. That's kind of exciting for me. I don't know about you. So let's look at Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. 
Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flashing sword, flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So, episode three. I've decided to entitle this The Seat of the Woman and the First Leather Pants. My wife and I um, like watching spy shows, and because it's free on, on um, Netflix, we've decided to watch the show Alias again, partly because it's fun and partly because where else can you see a TV drama in which it takes a season and a half for the two romantic ones to have their first kiss these days. Um, but in the first season, the main character, Sydney Bristow, is living the sort of preposterous double life. She's, she's this black ops spy on the one hand, and about like one episode in the season, she becomes a double spy for this group called SD6, and then the CIA, and on top of that, she's a master's student in literature in UC Berkeley or something like that. And it's sort of like, seriously, you really are doing all these things? And it's so bad after the first season, they sort of ditch the whole master's thing. We can just do the spy thing because it's just crazy to think that she could actually participate in these things. Um, but the thing is, is that although on TV shows, sometimes um, preposterous double roles don't actually work, one of the things that you find out in real life is anybody who has any responsibility at all realize that they're living intentioned roles. If you don't feel like your life is tensioned in different roles that you have, you don't have any responsibility or you're not actually fulfilling any of your responsibilities. Sorry if that's not encouraging. Um, and one of the things that, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a parent, you've got these roles of encouraging your child and disciplining your child. If you're a boss, you've got, you're trying to support employees, but you've also got the deal of what you're trying to accomplish in the organization. If you're a coach, you want to develop that player but not lose the game. I mean, there's just all these tensions in life if you have any responsibility. And in chapter one and two of the story, God is shown to be creator and king. He's the creator of everything, and he's the king of everything. But in chapter 3, he takes on two more roles, and they're deeply intentional with one another. In, in chapter 2, he becomes judge and, and savior. And those roles he embraces, he doesn't hesitate, and he embraces together. God, in the whole story of Scripture, is both the one who judges and the one who saves. Uh, the, what I want to do this morning um, in the next several minutes is um, I want to look at three hang-ups that people usually have in Genesis 3. Three things that people are like, oh, why is it like that? That's a terrible story. And to show that actually those three hang-ups are actually three of the claims that Genesis 3 actually makes about who God is and who we are. And so I want to kind of work from, from hang-up to claim and see what we can do. Okay? Sound good? Of course it does. Um, the first hang-up that people often have with Genesis 3 is, what is the deal with the snake? Like, honestly, you've got the snake that apparently is like one of the livestock, and he's talking, and apparently he's smarter than the woman, which doesn't sound very gender, you know, sensitive. And, um, 
And at the same time, though, built into this episode is the claim that image bearers don't have excuses. Okay? So if you look at the, the deal with the snake, like what is the deal with the snake anyway? And it's important to recognize that in Genesis 3, the point of this story is not um, how evil came about. The point of Genesis 3 is how evil entered the creation through the first humans. How did evil come to humanity? The question of how did evil enter into, the, enter into anything is not talked about in this passage. We don't know where the snake comes from. We don't know where the snake goes. We don't know what's behind all this. All we know is this is how evil comes to humanity. Now, at first there's a couple verses in the passage that make it look like it's just kind of like a normal snake that's just really precocious, right? I mean, it says in the first verse that he's the craftiest of the livestock, and the curse, he says, you're going to be cursed among all the livestock, and you're like, oh, it's kind of like a really special snake, I guess. But yet, at the same time, it's a talking snake. There aren't any other talking animals in the Bible that God doesn't make them talk. It's a little bit odd. And at the same time, too— The snake isn't just crafty. He's not just sort of knowledgeable. He knows stuff that only God knows in creation, right? The snake doesn't just know that, oh, look at this fruit. It looks kind of yummy. It must be mangoes, right? Like, he actually knows what will happen if the humans eat it, at least on some level. And he's able to kind of twist that to try to get the woman to buy into this thing, which kind of makes you go, "Is is it really just a snake? And then later, as you look through Scripture, there's a, a number of places where the Scriptures pick up this theme of a snake, which is in, against God and his adversary. So, for example, in Isaiah 27, verse 1, there's this place where God, when God brings about this final era of peace, where he has no more wrath for anything, um, he, he says that there will be a snake that he will destroy. And then in Revelation, where there's like all this imagery of God bringing about this final end, there is this huge serpent that is trying to kill a woman. The woman represents the church or God's people that he's protecting, and the snake represents evil that's trying to kill him. But it says that old worm or the snake dragon, Satan. Also, when you get a little bit further in the Bible, um, one of the things that people often don't realize with the name Satan is that, the, the, how, you know, how does the devil get the name Satan, right? That's not a very creative name, is it? And see, you see, Satan is just a Hebrew word that we don't translate. We just say it in English, right? So you know Hebrew words. Isn't that great? Um, Satan is the Hebrew word that means adversary or accuser, right? That's what it means. And so look at the snake. What's the snake's job? What does he do? What role is he playing? Well, he's playing the role of adversary, and he's specifically playing the role of adversary as accuser or conniver. And so most people have seen through the history of the church that this is not just an ordinary snake. But what it does point us to when we look at this whole passage and we put together what the significance of the snake is and his effect on the people is that deception and situation aren't valid excuses for image bearers. One of the things we actually learn quite a bit about in chapter 3 is what the image of God means. Chapter 1 and 2 don't say all that much about it. There's a bunch it does say. But when you get into chapter 3, the way God treats human beings actually tells us a pretty good bit about what it means to bear God's image. And one of the things it means to bear God's image is you don't get to use your situation and you don't get to use deception as an excuse for what you did or didn't do. One of the, I don't know about what happens in your house, but one of my, the things my, I have four kids, three of them of sentient age, and, um, One of the things that my kids know is if they throw around accusations when they do something wrong together, it is actually less likely that I'm going to come down hard on them. 
because I have this standard like, you know, my generation is like very averse to authority and like, so therefore we're terrified to discipline children. And so if I'm not sure I'm disciplining right, we tend to get morally frozen, right? And we can't discipline. And my kids know that and they try to take advantage as much as as they can. I'm sure your kids are wonderful in heart, but my kids have struggled with it a little bit. And so what they do is they accuse each other because they know if they accuse each other, I'm more likely to hold back then kind of charge forward. But see, it's interesting. That's not what God does at all, right? He shows up on the scene, and he's like, dude, did you eat from the tree? And he's like, I did, but it's actually this woman that you made. She made me do it. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa there, tiger, the snake. And, and God doesn't go, oh, it's the snake's fault. Why didn't you tell me, right? The more people who get implicated, the more people who are guilty. And nobody gets any less guilt. It's just like, oh, there's more people involved. Well, let me just take some names. Are there any more names you want to hand out? We'll just put them all. We'll put them all down. You know? There's no release from that. There's no excuses. Excuses simply aren't accepted. Now, there's a, there's a couple reasons why this is important for us to find ourselves in this story. The first is because you and I, when we come right down to it on some level, most of us are really counting on our excuses. In the end, if nothing else works, we're counting on our excuses. We're counting on, God, it wasn't clear enough. You know, I did what I could with what I had. Or there were so many people, like, there were so many counter voices. You didn't really speak loud enough. I mean, there are a lot of people telling me other stuff about you. And so there's that. I, you know, I was, I was born, don't you know I was born to this family? I was born in the socioeconomic class. Don't you know that my genetics, you know, affected me that much? And don't you know that there's no way I could have done this? And the, the problem is, is that this passage should make us very skeptical about putting any hope in that approach to God. God just doesn't really seem all that moved by that. He just doesn't accept those kinds of excuses from image bearers. The, um, the second thing, and this is one of the reasons I think he doesn't accept the excuses from the image bearers, is that the, uh, the accusation that the serpent makes about God, we really should know is preposterous, but we don't. I mean, how many times have you read this passage or heard this passage referenced or heard somebody reference Genesis 3 and say, you know, well, you know, you, could, you, you know, the snake said this stuff and how was the woman supposed to know? And, you know, God just sort of set them up and allowed this guy to get in here and surely there should have been another side of the argument. You know, he, there should have been like a divine gopher there to be like, no, that's wrong. And that, none of that happened. And, you know, God really should have done that. And you see, that's what happens when you start reading in chapter 3, verse 1, and you forget or don't read the two chapters before it. I mean, how would you look at if you wrote a book and people started reading on the third page and didn't bother to read the first two pages and go, this is a bad book? Right? The first two pages of the Bible, chapters 1 and 2, um, well, if you see the Pew Bibles, it's four pages, um, focuses on the fact that God is amazingly generous and good and forthcoming. He creates everything. He creates it all good. He's extremely generous. In chapter 2, not only does he put the man in the beautiful creation he made, but he makes an even more beautiful, more peaceful, more joy-filled, more supportive sub-creation called the garden to put him in. He recognizes that man's needs aren't completely fulfilled, even though he he puts them over a really diverse creation. So he creates this woman for him. So well does he create it. When When the guy meets her, he bursts into song, right? And he's so happy, and they have a relationship with God. Apparently, he walks with them in the garden when things aren't quite so hot out, right? And yet, here comes the serpent, and he goes, 
You know who's holding out on you? God's holding out on you. That's what the, that's what the thing is, right? He basically, he, that's the argument. The argument is, yeah, yeah, you might die, but probably not too fast. And then if you had the wisdom of God, you know you don't. But here's the real issue. Here's what God knows. What does that mean when he says, God knows you'll have wisdom and knowledge of good and evil and you'll be like him? What's the sub-argument there? How is he assassinating God's character? He's saying God knows it. He doesn't want to give it to you. He's holding out on you. You can't trust God to give you everything you need. Right? And the, the problem for us then is, why do we come to this? Why do we read this and not laugh? When we hear what the serpent has to say and cringe in horror at the ridiculousness of the woman's response and the man's response who was with her. And it's because we're like this. This is how the Bible works. The Bible is great in that it has characters that are just like you and me. There is something wrong with us that we find the trustworthy one hard to believe the deceitful one, easy to understand, and we just seem to want to believe people who tell us we can be God. Right? I mean, why, why can there be more than one cable news channel with people just coming on and saying whatever occurs to them? The deception, gossip, telling us whatever we want to hear, it thrives in human culture. It sells. You know, it's kind of like the 18-year-old who goes to college and listens to a professor talk about how, like, bad and backwards their parents are, and who comes home for, like, winter break and is like, you know, you guys really didn't give me opportunities. And like, I, you know, my college professor said, and you're like, dude, did you, literally, you forgot the last 18 years, didn't you? Like, seriously, you, for, you forgot that I, like, you don't remember when I was changing your diapers, do you? That, you've forgotten that, haven't you? And how I paid for your college and sent you there with a car and took care of everything you need and was there for you all along and supplied everything you could possibly require for your whole childhood until you finally went and figured out that there were, there were people out in the world who'd lie about us. Right? But that happens. Now, thankfully, almost as often, the 19-year-old realizes about a semester and that they ought to make that phone call home where they say, Mom and Dad, I didn't, I didn't realize. Thank you. Sometimes it's after that first conversation. But we are like that. And so one of the things we con- the, 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 that the snake ought to point us towards is this reality that, A, God doesn't buy into excuses of saying, well, I was deceived or I was in a situation where I couldn't thrive. That doesn't fly. Because we know what we need to know to believe the one that we should trust. We'll talk about that a little more when we get to the tree, which we'll do that right now. The second hang-up is the tree, right? Okay, you've probably heard this one, or thought this one more than the snake, right? I have more conversations about the tree being a hang-up than the snake being a hang-up, right? Well, seriously, why did God have to do that? He made this beautiful creation. He made this beautiful garden. He put the people in it. Why did he have to make a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and stick it in the middle of the garden and create this huge temptation and make it impossible, you know, and make it so that the humans would screw up all of creation? That's his, it's really his fault. It's like when a parent, like, turns the stove on and, like, puts a stool next to it and, like, boils water and, like, you know, dangles gummy worms over it, you know? So, um, well, let me give you, like, a counterfactual on that. 
So my mom is 74. This is actually the 10th anniversary of my dad dying. And um, uh, she's 74. So, uh, you know, as she kind of gotten along in years, um, she's decided that she wanted to make sure that her finances are in place. If something were to happen to her, my brother and I could pay for her funeral expenses and stuff like that. So she created a savings account and put my brother's name on it with hers and a checking account and put my name on it with hers. And she said, okay, here's this checking account. There's this much money in it. And I just want you to know that you can get it at any time you want. Here's a bank card. Anytime you want to, you can go in and you can pull out all the money. Um, you have total access to it. So if anything ever happens to me, I want you to be able to pay any expenses and blah, 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 right? Here's my question. Is my mother a bad mother? Like she knows darn well there's stuff I want that I can't afford. Right? She knows that. Right? But yet, she gives me access to money that I can't use. She's just a horrible person, right? I mean, I... I mean, who would do that to their son, their own child, right? Well, here's the thing. I don't think that, I don't think she's a bad mother, and here's why. Because I'm not an idiot. Well, at least not on that level, right? I mean, like, it's my mom's money. It's not my money. She earned it. She has a right to use it. It's not mine. She's a perfectly good reason for giving me access to it, but asking me not to take it. Yes, it could torture me if I was a certain kind of person. If I thought I was entitled to it. If somebody came along and told me that I should go get a bunch of it or something. I don't know. But as long as I know it's not mine, and I know who I am and what is, is and who she is, and what a parent-child relationship is and all that stuff, it's not a temptation. What's the big deal? You see, the tree is only a problem if the humans are a certain way. The idea that somehow God has done something morally wrong because he put a tree in the garden and told them not to eat of it. Do you see how that screws up everything logically? Now, one of the reasons, now you might be sitting there saying, okay, Nick, that's not actually a very good analogy. And here's, and if you're thinking that, you're right. And here's why. Because most of us, when we read Genesis 3, we don't actually believe there is a purpose for the tree other than it being a test. Right? The reason why I have access to that bank account is because there's a purpose. Right? Well, one of the things that we need to recognize about Genesis 3 is Genesis 3 does not say the tree is there as a test. It doesn't say that that's why God put it there. It doesn't say that that's what its long-term purpose was. It doesn't say—it doesn't even say that God— it just—it doesn't say any of that stuff. All it says is there is a tree there, and God said not to touch it and, or well, not to eat from it. And it's actually not very good interpretation to believe that this situation the humans were in was static, right? I mean, Genesis 1 explicitly says the human beings aren't going to stay in the garden forever. I mean, it explicitly says they're going to go take over the world, right? It says, go multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. I want you to go out into the world, and I want you to bring out the created potential that's there. That's what you're there for. That's what human beings are. So this idea that everything was going to stay just the way it was. They were going to eat the oranges, but not the mangoes, and it was going to be like that forever, and God was never going to teach them anything more, and they were all going to be kind of in this moral stupor that they were apparently in, is false. There's no reason to believe that. It's much more reasonable to believe that God is in this creation order and he's accomplishing things as they're going along. And there's this whole educational plan for the humans. I mean, God walks with them in the day. They have conversations. What are they talking about? There's no reason you have to believe that God wasn't going to let them eat from the tree at some point. Maybe he was. We don't know. It could have been a temporary command. We don't even know that. 
They may not have been in the garden very long. He may have had some other purpose for it. We don't know any of that stuff because the story takes a tragic turn. There's no reason to believe God didn't have some other purpose, and to the extent to which that's true, the story about the bank account my mom does obtain. It's just the same. Why believe God is only doing that? Especially when there's other places in Scripture um, where God, ex- where explicitly said God doesn't act that way. He doesn't do things that are sheer temptations for us. There are things that he creates that end up tempting us because of how we think about them. But God never puts something in front of us just to tempt us. For example, this passage in James. Right? Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he's dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has fully has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be Remember this word from Genesis 3? Deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, a reference to creation, right? Who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. I can't, I'm not going to get all the connections there between redemption and creation, but there's a bunch there. Now, The claim that we can get from the tree is this. That God's glory isn't just about his lack of limits. It's also about his glorious self-limitation, his goodness. Let me tell you what I mean by that. When God created human beings in his image, is us imaging him just that we are somehow powerful? Right? We are powerful. For the most part. I mean, human beings have accomplished some amazingly thing, amazingly cool things through their power. We have lots of technology and things like that. Are we powerful? Yes. But is that really even the lion's share of how we're supposed to image God in the world? Right? You see, we believe in what's called God's omnipotence. That means God has all power. But that doesn't necessarily mean that God can do anything, even stuff that's logically imp- impossible. For example, would it be a display of God's omnipotence for him to say— Two plus two equals five. There are married bachelors. Um, there, I'm, here are some square circles, and good and evil are the same thing. No, that's not what omnipotent means. Omnipotence means God can do anything that's logically possible, and there are a lot more things that are logically possible than we think there are. Because we're pretty good at proving that things aren't logically possible when they are. But... There are many things that God does or does not do, namely that he doesn't do, that are, that are not a function of a lack of power, but a self-limitation. So, for example, if you look in the book of James, right, there's this verse, or I'm sorry, in Hebrews, it says this, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, right? What's that mean? So, so those of us who are going to believe in Jesus and become heirs to the inheritance of salvation that comes from Jesus— God wanted to make what we could receive in Jesus really clear so we could know it and we could lean our faith into it and be sure of what he was doing, right? Because of that, it says, it heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath, meaning he promised it, right? Now, what sort of person can you trust their oath? Somebody who never lies, right? 
That's the only person you can trust, right? God did this so that by two unchanging things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who had fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Wait a second, what are the two things? What are the two unchangeable things? Right? A, one unchangeable thing is God never, ever, 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 ever lies. He never has lied, and he never will lie. And two, he took a promise. He made an oath. So therefore, because this, this is unchangeable, the oath is unchangeable. The oath can never change. The oath that you can be saved through faith in Jesus if you just give yourself to him and receive what he's done for you, that oath is as stable as God's existence itself. That's why he promised it. What that means is, well, you go, well, wait a second, why can't God lie? It's not a function of, function of omnipotence, is it? It's not because God isn't powerful enough to say the truth is false. God has the power to lie. He just never will. God has moral self-limitations because he's good. That's part of his character, and his character essence is unchanging and eternal. It's not that he couldn't say two plus two equals six, don't you know? It's because he is inherently and eternally good, and there are self-limitations in order to be good. It means you can't do evil, i.e., the omnipotent God can't lie. Does that scandalize you? It shouldn't. It's a divine self-limitation that's based in his goodness. Now, here's the question. How do you mirror that? How do you image that in the world? How do you live out the image of God that you were created to live out? live out. And that is, you accept God's moral self-limitations through his commands for you. That is, you obey God. You see, I know people have, for the last however many years, been trying to get back to the ancient Greeks where we could have religion over here and morality over here, and never the two shall meet. I'm spiritual, and I'll do whatever I want. I'm spiritual, and I'll do whatever I want. Spirituality and morality need not be related to each other. For hundreds and thousands of years in the ancient world, that was true. Judaism and then Christianity upended that because it said, no, human beings are created in the image of God. The gods aren't evil. The God is maximally good. We're made in his image. Therefore, human existence has to be moral. It's inescapably moral. How we image God is who and what we are. We are meant to be good. We are meant to obey God's self-limitations. We're meant to live out a moral beauty, and that is a huge part of how we live out the image of God in the world. And the first lesson of that is, don't eat that. A single, simple limitation. It's lesson number one. It's not a hard lesson. But it's a necessary one because you can't image God without obeying limitations. God is a self-limited, maximally good being. And to image him means accepting that for ourselves. Let's look at the last one. What's with God's reaction? Or God is both judge and savior. 
One of the things that people struggle with with Genesis 3 is they feel like God massively overreacts. In fact, that's most people's problem with the image of God in the whole Bible. Besides that God is pretty exclusive, the second thing that people really have a problem with is they feel like if God is like the God of the Bible, he's constantly overreacting to things. Um, and and I, it's not my desire to try to humiliate that view. Listen, we, we live in a culture in which, you know, any reference to discipline or people getting what they deserve for what they actually do, or that that's all, that's seen as sort of like punitive, angry sort of thing. And so we just tend to have this feeling like any kind of retribution or justice in that sort of sense is wrong. Until somebody hurts us, then we want their eyes gouged out, their head chopped off, you know. Um, and so we look at Genesis 3, and, and see, the issue with Genesis 3 is um, it really depends on what you think happened. Uh, what's, what's the crime? You know, the, if, if the if the claim is, listen, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, the question is, oh, wait a second, what's the crime? What do you think happened? You see, because if what you think happened is somebody got confused and ate a fruit they probably shouldn't have, and then all of creation gets cursed, and they get thrown out of the garden, and blah, blah, blah. well, yeah, that sounds pretty awful, right? You know, that sounds a little bit like, you know, a, a kid eats something out of the pantry they're not supposed to, and you beat them half to death and stick them in a snow, snowbank for 48 hours. Yeah, that's, that doesn't sound right, because it's not. But, you see, if you've read Genesis 1 and 2, and you know who God is, and you know what human beings are, and you know where human beings sit with God and creation, and you know what they've been called to subdue and bring out of creation the whole earth, what God has called them to do. If you know creation is supposed to be beneath the humans, and the humans to unite the creation with God. And if you know all of that, and then this happens, what you're going to realize is that to eat the fruit was literally a coup against the Creator. It was an attempt to, to de-God God. It was a rebellion and a def defamation against the good maker of everything, and a, literally a reversal of the order of creation. It was to take the order of God, human, creation, and flip it over to the snake representing creation. Creation, human, God. It was the maximal possible offense. Um, when I was in uh, seminary, one of my professors was talking about a woman he'd met when he was preaching in England. And there, there was this young woman, she just got out of university, and she was given a teaching post in one of the downtown London schools in not a very nice neighborhood. And so she had these, like, kind of unruly poor kids in her class. Now, in England, religious education, Christian religious education is compulsory. It's a state church. And so you're supposed to teach Christianity in the lower grades. And so I think this was seventh grade she was in. And so she had, like, the book that she was supposed to teach from, and she tried it. It just was going nowhere. The kids were, like, shooting spit wads and stuff, and it wasn't really working. So she, she decided to take a different tack. So she came in the next—the kids came in the next day, and the room was filled with all these art supplies, right? It was paper mache and chicken wire and boards and just paint and all kinds of stuff. And she said, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a world. Let's do that. And so for the religious education hour or two hours um, during the week, for a few months— they created a world. They made little paper mache mountains and rivers and centaurs and, you know, people and dogs and cats and all kinds of stuff. And they could make anything they want. They had these little weird critters and, you know, whatever. And they did this for a long time. And they, I mean, they did a really good job and it looked really nice. And, and one day she said, okay, so have you, I guess I've had fun doing this. And they're like, yeah, it's been really fun. Okay. So let's say, and she picked up one of the weird little creatures that they made. Let's say this one said to you, you know what? I don't like you. I don't like how self-important you are. 
I don't like how you think you own the place. I don't, think, I don't like how you think you can tell us what to do. I don't even like how you made me. I wish I was different. I don't like this place you made. And she's kind of going on. And she, and she says, you know, what, what, what would you say to, you know, what would you, what would you do if, you know, if, if, they said this, if he said this to you, you know? And she kind of was going on. And finally some kid in the back yells out, I'd break his bloody legs! <laughs> okay, that's one way to do it, right? Anybody got a pipe? Yeah, so, um, but the, the, the thing, I mean, so you can see kind of what she was trying to do as a teacher. She was trying to create not just a sense of like sort of punitive revenge, but a sense of like real indignation of the true injustice of the situation. I mean, you read Genesis 3 to a bunch of seventh graders and be like, yeah, whatever. But you actually put them in the situation and they realize that there's a real legitimate indignation that would come from the creator. He's the maker. He has a plan for all this, and they're just going to be like, we're God. You see, if you think the offense is a mistake, some little mistake somebody made, then yeah, it's the, the, the punishment is way out of proportion to the crime. However, if you believe it is what it, the Bible presents it as, well, then the only argument you can really make is that he, God doesn't punish them nearly enough. I mean, the, the obvious choice here would be to wipe these people out and start over. The fact that God doesn't do it, and the fact that he doesn't do it so early on. I mean, think about it. There's only two humans. I mean, how hard does it make two more? I mean, it's not like there's 50 billion of them or something, you know? Oh, I gotta kill all of them, you know? There's two! All you gotta do is make the nectarines go bad. But he, do- he doesn't choose to do that. Now, there's another reason why this matters. And that is that you'd be like, well, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. The big deal is that everything you do is a big deal. That's the thing. And that's one of the things that we don't believe. You see, more and more our culture is getting to the place where we are believing more and more that the thing, very few things we do are inherently moral in nature. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. What the Bible teaches is the minute that you're created in the image of God, almost everything you do is of immense consequence and its immense consequences morally is that it's morally consequential, right? So in Mark's gospel in um, chapter 10, verse 42, or I'm sorry, in Matthew 10, 42, Jesus says to some people, he says, listen, if you even give a person a cup of cold water in my name, I will never forget that. I mean, think about that. That's pretty cool, right? And, you know, like your kid is thirsty and you, they go, you know, mommy, can I have a drink? And you get him some water out of the tap and you put it in front of him and Jesus says, that's an act of kindness. It has moral significance. And when you do that, I will never forget it. Ever. For eternity, that will be remembered. Now, on one level, you're kind of like, well, it's just easy to be nice to people. That's good. But on another level, isn't that terrifying? That's terrifying to think that our, our minor actions are of such moral consequence. You see, one of the things that we've got to recognize is that as human beings, we do not get to pick our moral size. You don't get to decide your life isn't going to be that morally consequential. You don't get to pick that. When God made you in his image and made you to image him in the world, to live in creation, to fulfill and bring out the potential he put into it, to be his vice regent in the world, you are that. Whether you like it or not, you can't Downgrade. You can't decide you want to play on the, on the modified team and not the varsity team. You are what you are. And everything you do is profoundly consequential. 
Um, one of the uh, one of the, the uh, movies that our family likes is um, the movie Mon- Monsters vs. Aliens. Have you ever seen? Have you seen this one? Mon- you haven't seen? You, okay, well, I shouldn't tell you you should, but we like it. Um, and if, in this movie, there's um, there's this woman Susan who's going to get married, and she's got her little plan and everything, and she's getting ready to go in the church to get married. She gets hit by a meteor, right? That has some kind of weird thing on it, and it turns her into this fifty foot woman who's basically indestructible and can do just about anything. Okay. She's just this huge, big, strong 50-foot woman. Now, here's the thing about being a 50-foot tall woman. You can't go to neighborhood barbecues anymore. Like, this is—she's going to see her parents, and, like, she's just trying to walk down the street, and she, like, destroys their fence, because she's just—she's too big. When you're big, you can't be small. And it's, it's not bad. It's just you aren't that kind of creature. But, you know, she can destroy intergalactic, 100-foot tall, you know— flying UFO destruction machine things. So you, so you got a choice to make. You can sit around and be angry at God that he didn't create you small enough to live a morally inconsequential life that would deserve no punishment of any kind if you rejected him, nor any praise of any kind if you accepted him, so that your existence was totally inconsequential in the history of the universe and that you could do whatever you want. You could be mad that God didn't give you that life. Or you could recognize that you are a 50-foot tall woman. You can destroy UFOs, but you can't go to barbecues. You can't help but live a morally consequential life. You don't get to pick your size. You are going to be like God in this sense. And therefore, you are exposed to the judge. And the consequences that God offers are extremely merciful when he becomes their judge. If you understand what they really did, who they really are, and then ultimately what God's really doing. Because when he does this, he doesn't just become their judge, he also becomes their savior. And this is the tension of God's roles. That the one who wholeheartedly judges, because that's what's necessary and important and proportional and proper and right and even good, I mean, the the Bible portrays God when he acts as judge to both desire to show mercy and to hate to judge, but also to be pleased to do so. There are certain passages in the Bible that talk about God's reluctance to judge and how he hates to destroy any human life, and yet, when he does it, that he takes pleasure in doing so. Because there's this tension. He doesn't want to destroy his valuable, loved creation. But when it is time to judge and nothing else can be done, to judge is morally beautiful and good, and he loves what's good completely. And when he gets here, he judges. He gives them exactly what they deserve. They lose paradise. They lose their innocence. The knowledge of good and evil that they get destroys them. The human race has been trying to get the knowledge of good and evil out of our heads like a poltergeist our whole existence. It turns us around and it makes us insane. But, at the same time, where God judges, he also takes steps in that moment to redeem so there is judgment, right? And, and he judges even that which is really good. I mean, when he judges, tells the woman she's going to have more pains in childbirth, that she's going to um, 
have a desire for her husband, but he's going to rule over her, and that the husband is going to work from the dust of the ground. What's he saying there? Right? The idiom, your desire is going to be for, but you must rule over, that same phrase is in chapter 4. When, Paul, when God says to Cain, he says, you, sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. That is, there is an inherent conflict inside of you. Sin is fighting for your life, and you have to fight back against it. Now, that's good advice to Cain, but if you see that same verbal use of the relationship between the man and the woman, what does that mean? It means the harmony of marriage is broken. The unity and harmony and complementarity between the genders is broken as part of the curse. What a terrible curse. One of God's greatest blessings is to give man and woman to each other. And one of the first things that is cursed is one of the greatest things that is the harmony between men and women. We've been experiencing it ever since. Childbirth is going to be difficult. What's the creation mandate? Fill the earth. The very thing that's part of the creation mandate that is specifically and only for women is going to be a whole lot worse. And that they were both supposed to go out and subdue the world. And what does God say is going to happen to that world they have to subdue now? It's going to be a whole lot harder to subdue. It's going to be against them. That's the curse. But when you look at this passage, you have to look a little bit But there's three places at least in this passage where you can see the beginning of the seeds of God becoming their Savior and in becoming their Savior, becoming ours. In 3.22, he gets them away from the tree of life. Now, on one level, that's judicial. They can't eat from the tree of life. But in another sense, God already knows he's going to use death to save. They're going to die. You and I, we're going to die. But when you see how the plan of salvation works out, it actually uses Christ's death, but also our death to save us. God knew that there was a means by which, I mean, it actually says in Romans, we are freed from the law when we die. Remember that passage in Romans, it says, how long is a wife bound to her husband under the law of marriage? As long as she's alive. But what happens when she dies? Or what happens when the husband dies? She can marry anybody she wants to, Right? Because the law of marriage that binds them together is broken by death. The law and its claim on us is broken by death. And so God already realized we needed to be the kind of creature that died if he was going to save us ultimately. And so he gets us away from the tree of life, both because we have no right to eat it. We don't know if there was another plan in which we were going to eat it and live forever without dying. All we know is that in the new plan, he got us away from it. The second thing, and the two things that are talked about more with this passage are, one, in 321, he kills something. I mean, think about this. They knew they were naked. They made garments out of fig leaves. And then when God showed up, they still said they were naked. Why? Because fig leaves don't make very good clothes. Right? It was preposterous. The human beings covering them themselves was preposterous. And up until this point, there's no mention of the humans or God killing anything. But yet God kills something to create the first clothes, first leather pants, to, to cover the shame of the human beings so that they could be covered. And that begins this whole line in the Bible of the idea and the theme of atonement, that God produces a covering to save those who are guilty of sin. And then lastly, in 3.15, when God curses the snake, and if you buy the idea that the snake actually stands in as a personification of evil and maybe even Satan himself, 
God says to the woman, he says, listen, there's going to be conflict between your seed, your offspring, and the serpent forever. And ultimately, you're going to crush his head and he is going to strike your heel. And you see, in the ancient world, seed was always in reference to men, right? Sexuality was understood as men provided seed, women provided fertile ground. That's how you had children. But he refers to the seed of the woman, the woman's offspring, was going to crush the head of the serpent. There's only ever been one offspring without the seed of the man that was the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. And in the cross, his heel was struck. But in dying and rising from the dead, he snapped the neck of the final serpent. He wins life for all of us. He's, and theologians call that verse the proto-euangelion, the first good news, the first gospel. Before the gospel all came out, there was this promise that so, we mostly all just read over until we knew it at the end. But even when God is judging, and this is what I want you to take, take away from today. Even when God is judging, even at the first sin, even when everything goes wrong, even when the human beings have no idea what they are and they try to de-God God from creation, when they sin as profoundly as they can, when they reject all the good that he's given them, when they undo their very being, in that moment, God is judge as he must be and will be. And in that moment, he is showing mercy and he is already working a way to save them. Because God will exist in the tension of his two roles. He will not be a simplistic being. He will be judge. And he will be savior. We will be consequential beings. And we will experience God as one of those two, primarily in our lives. And we can either accept his divinely created leather pants. I mean, we can either accept him covering our sins that ultimately is demonstrated in Jesus' death for us. Or we can try to sow our own fig leaves, but I'm just going to take you back to the serpent and remind you that excuses for image bearers don't work. And we best not put our hope in them. But the same God who in Genesis 1 and 2 gave the humans everything they could possibly need, everything they required, saw their need before they had it, and made sure that it was supplied for him. That's called grace. Freely giving what people need. So in our sin, God has freely supplied everything we need through Christ. And you need to only receive him through faith. You need to just believe in, accept Christ's death for you, invite him into your life, lean on what scripture teaches about him, invite God's Holy Spirit to fill you and apply that in you, be part of his people trying to figure out that together called the church. But you need to ask yourself at the end of the day, who is it that's really holding out on you? Who is it? Is it, God? is it God? Is God really the one who's holding out on you? Or is it somebody else? Or something else? Are you being deceived? And are you hoping that that's okay if you can just make the best excuses? Or are you willing to be like God and accept his self-limitations and obey? Father, we lift up to you this passage and we pray that you'd help us to recognize the severity of sin, both in terms of what it really is and who we really are. And help us to accept the fact that we are as morally consequential as you say we are. 
and that that's part of us imaging you in the world and that the image of God is something, if we want to hate it, we can hate it, but it's in us. And we're either going to live it out or rebel against it our whole lives. And we pray that you'd help us to embrace the purpose and meaning for which you've created us. Help us to create the, help us to accept the mandate you gave us in creation and in salvation. Help us to turn to you, the generous one, for everything we need. Help us to not believe the preposterous accusations against your name. Help us to see that you've always been the trustworthy one, that you are the one who did two, created two unchangeable things, the character of your unchangeable truthful nature and the oath and promise that all who turn to Jesus will be covered in the garments you make for them to cover their sin and to bring them rightfully to you. And we pray that as we go through the story of the scriptures that we would see how good you are, how important the choices we make are, how you want to bring us to yourself, how you've provided everything that we could want, how you aren't the one holding out on us, and how we can trust you and obey you. And in doing so, we become what we were meant to be, an image the one who everyone and everything was meant to see, the creator, savior, king, who is judge, but is even more glad to show mercy and be savior. In Jesus' name, amen.